Some of you may not be aware that yesterday morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, a freshman student by the name of Kevin Signo passed away. I want you to be aware that that occurred. Um, Kevin was a pre-biology major from Frisco, Texas, and uh, he was one of our community. And for those of you who did not know him, um, he was a part of this community. And some of you uh, are going to be rubbing shoulders with people who will be in great grief and sadness and maybe periods of questioning over the next couple of days. Um, funeral services are still pending, and so we will, um, you'll get an email from Baylor at some point regarding those services. But I did think it would be appropriate for us to pray this morning, so I'm going to ask you to do what we've done many times before as I lead you in prayer. Will you also pray um, yourself? Let's pray together this morning. Lord God, you're the master of life and death, and you told us that you're the resurre your resurrection and the life. And this morning we believe that with all of our hearts. God, you know far more than we do about death, and we come to you this morning, some in pain, some in questioning, and we give that all to you. Will you dwell within our sadness? within our disbelief? Will you draw us near to you, our God, because we are in desperate need of your help? Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on Kevin's family this morning as they are grieving. Have mercy on his roommates, on his friends, on those who knew him. You've promised to be near to the brokenhearted. So this morning, God, we all pray for the Baylor community, for Kevin's community back in Frisco. And we pray that you would dwell in their sadness. God, we pray all these things in the name of our God who holds us and is present with us in our times of greatest grief. Amen. I hope that you will walk alongside the friends of Kevin. I hope that you will just be aware um, if you happen to be around folks who um, know Kevin or maybe you did yourself. I hope that you'll be aware of um, the sadness that's happening this morning. A couple of months ago, several months ago actually, someone sent me a website of a speaker, and that happens fairly often. One of you will send me a website and say, hey, we need to bring this speaker. And I know sometimes you might think, well, that, you know, they probably get a hundred of these, they'll never bring this person. But we do. We look at every one of them and we check them out and we see if it's somebody we want you to hear from. In this particular website, I looked at the text on the front page and it said these words, faith and other flat tires searching for God on the rough road of doubt. Well, I have had my share of issues with doubt, mostly because I am by nature very cynical, which seems odd being a chaplain at a university and that espouses a faith that, that really talks about having faith, meaning believing in something you cannot see. Well, at my very core, I'm a cynical person. I ask a lot of questions. 
So I looked a little deeper into the website, and I found that the author of this great book was Andrea Palpendilly, and I'm happy to tell you today that she's here as our chapel guest. She grew up in Kenya, the daughter of Quaker missionaries, and spent the rest of her childhood in the Pacific Northwest. Her work as a documentary film producer has aired on American public television. Her work as a writer has been published on Utney Reader and the anthology Jesus Girls, True Tales of Growing Up Female and Evangelical. She's been featured on CNN, The Huffington Post, Duke, Divinity, Hermeneutics, Christianity Today. I could go on. Her memoir, Faith and Other Flat Tires, that I just mentioned, um, is her struggle with faith and what it means to be a believer. Andrea will be out front immediately following her talk this morning. She'll be out front, and in the first chapel, several students um, really enjoyed just a chance to sit with her and chat for a while. Uh, the bookstore is also here selling that exact book, and Andrea will be happy to sign it for you and just chat with you about her life. She currently lives not in Kenya and not in the Pacific Northwest. She moved a little closer to home, to here, to us. Um, I won't mention there is another university in her town that will remain nameless this morning, but she lives in Austin. And so, will you welcome with me this morning to Baylor Chapel, Andrea Palpendilly. Thanks, Ryan. I have a bit of a cold, so pardon me. I drove up yesterday from Austin with my husband and two kids. My three-year-old, actually this morning when she found out I was speaking, she was under the assumption that all of you were going to crowd into the hotel room and hang out on the beds while I spoke to you. So that's, like, that's how her little three-year-old mind works. It was pretty funny. I had to explain, well, probably not. That's how I talk to you. But, um, I'm speaking this morning on the subject of faith and doubt. It's the subject of my book, and it's also in many ways the subject of my life, my faith story. I start the book out with a story from my junior year in college. I went to a school that's actually fairly similar to Baylor, an evangelical, um, small liberal arts school called Whitworth up in the Northwest. Some of you may be familiar with it. So it's my junior year in college, and I find myself in this space between faith and doubt. I'd grown up as a missionary kid, I'd grown up, which is a lot like being a pastor's kid, honestly, for those of you who are pastor's kids. Grown up as a missionary kid, grown up in the church, here I am in college at a Christian school, and I'm asking myself the question, do I really, do I believe this? Do I wanna own the Christian faith? On Friday nights, I was hanging out in bars with my English major friends, drinking and carrying on and talking about existential nihilism and Samuel Beckett and all of the really nerdy, angsty things that English majors talk about. That was who I was on Friday night. And on Sundays, I was still teaching Sunday school to junior hires. Talk about a really weird juxtaposition. But that's who I was. I, I felt caught. I was still practicing the habits of faith, on the one hand, at the same time that I was leaning into doubt that same year, I remember overhearing my parents. I was at my parents' house, and my mother was standing in the kitchen with my father, and my mother turned to my father and said, why are we spending so much money to watch our daughter lose her faith? 
it was really hard for her. Here they'd sent me off to this Christian institution and I was starting to question my faith. There were three issues, three struggles that I had specifically. And before I share, you, share those with you, I want to tell you a story. I start out the book with a particular story that really symbolizes where I was at that time in my life, right before I left the church. So again, I'm 21, that's the context for this story. My parents live about seven miles from the college I was attending. I pretended like they were about 7,000 miles away until I needed to do free laundry. So on Saturday, I took my laundry down to their house while the laundry was running. I went into my mother's kitchen. I still remember this to this day, opening her, her silverware drawer, taking out a butter knife and going out to my car to do something that symbolized in a really strange way my departure from the Christian faith. I had on the back bumper of that car one of those ichthus fishes. My older brother had driven the car for a number of years and then I inherited it. It was a complete beater, a little Plymouth hatchback. And when he owned it, he'd put the ichthus fish on the back of the bumper. And that day, I decided it was time for the Jesus bumper sticker to come off my car. So I took that butter knife and I knelt down beside the bumper and I chipped off every last piece of it until there was nothing left. And then I picked up the pieces in my hand, carried them into the house, and dumped them in the garbage. It was my way of saying, I'm done. I don't know what I think about the Christian faith, but I sure do not want a Christian fish on the back of my car. I wanted an unmarked car as a way to say, I have an unmarked heart. I don't know what I believe. Don't talk to me about it, I'm not sure yet. That's where I was. So three questions, three struggles that propelled me out the doors of the church. I did leave the church when I was 22 and I'll talk more about that, but there were three things I was struggling with that junior year. First, an intellectual problem. I was struggling with what philosophers would call the problem of God's hiddenness. Why does God seem hidden? Why does God not seem more accessible? I love pattern and predictability, and I couldn't find pattern and predictability with regard to how God intervened in the world. God didn't seem present when I wanted God to seem present. So the problem of God's hiddenness, that was a profoundly disturbing struggle for me. Second, I struggled with the institutional church. Honestly, going to church felt really kitschy to me. The whole thing, I just didn't like it. Didn't like going to church, and I didn't feel like the church had robust, substantive answers to my questions. And that's what I wanted. I wanted definitive answers to my questions. And they were very real questions. So I felt dissatisfied with church. That was number two. Number three was a problem of the heart. I struggled with what philosophers, I keep saying philosophers because I'm married to a philosopher. I, um, so what philosophers would call the problem of evil. Some of you may have heard that term before. It's just a way of saying, how, how do we make sense of faith and suffering? Why is it that a good, all-loving, all-knowing God would allow suffering to exist in the world? That was a question that I really profoundly struggled with. 
So let's push forward in my story now. That question was driven home by an experience that I had right after my senior year in college. So now I'm 22. I've just graduated with my fancy English major. And I'm in a bit of a crisis in three ways now, not just spiritual crisis. I'm also undergoing vocational crisis. I have an English major. I don't know if I can get a job. So I'm undergoing vocational crisis. What am I going to do with my life? I'm undergoing emotional crisis. I just left behind my college community. All my friends are going to different parts of the country. I'm not dating anyone. I have no community. And then spiritual crisis. What do I believe? I've grown up in the Christian church. I'm not sure I believe this anymore. So I'm in a state of crisis. Consider yourself warned the years after college are really tough. They're hard. They're good, but they're really hard. So that's the space that I'm in for this particular story. So the year, the summer after I graduate from college, I spent that summer working in a Mother Teresa orphanage in the slums of Nairobi. Talk about a life-changing experience. That question, the problem of evil, became very personal to me very quickly. I can still remember standing in the AIDS nursery of that orphanage holding this baby that couldn't have been more than four pounds, this little preemie AIDS baby whose parents had died, wrapped in muslin, crying, holding, and, and just thinking, what, what happened here? What happened to this baby? Not only did your parents abandon you through disease and death, but it feels like God abandoned you too. I, I couldn't make sense of it. I, I felt so, I felt a kind of moral indignation, like this can't happen. This isn't fair. How do I believe? How do I have faith on the one hand and hold an AIDS baby on the other hand? It was a, it was a tough summer for me, you guys. It was a tough summer to, to experience, especially right after college. So I come back from that summer and I'm still going to church, but honestly, I'm still going out of habit more than anything else. One Sunday, my older brother, I'm now 22 and a half, my older brother invites me to come to his church. His daughter's getting baptized, and I decide to go, mostly out of love for my niece more than anything else. The pastor that morning preached on Psalm 91, and for those of you who aren't familiar with the psalm, in so many words, it says, if you make the most higher dwelling, no harm will overtake you. The pastor that morning took a really literal interpretation of that psalm. He said to us in so many words, if you just believe, if you have enough faith, you'll be, you'll be protected from suffering. Well, that made me livid. I had just been in an orphanage. The insinuation, the mere idea that a little AIDS baby was suffering because she didn't have enough faith. It was absurd, first of all. And it made me furious. It struck some really deep chord in my heart. At another time in my life, had I had enough distance, I would have been able to say, it's just one pastor, it's one sermon. It's not representative of the entire Christian faith. But at the time, I was in a really fragile place spiritually, and I just couldn't listen to that sermon anymore. I felt, again, that sense of moral indignation. 
So right in the middle of the sermon, I was halfway down. Picture yourself in the middle of right here. I stood up in the middle of that sermon, and I leaned over to my father, and I said, this is bullshit. I walked out. Yeah, talk about mad, right? Walked out, marched to the end of that pew, and stormed out of the church. And that was it. I was like, I'm done. I'm so finished with all of this. I was, I was furious, not just with the church, but with faith itself and all of its paradoxes and all of its messy enigmas. I just was done. I said, okay, I'm finished. That moment was very emblematic of where I was at that time in my life. I left the church. I moved from the space of faith into a space of doubt. And I did it really dramatically in some ways. When we talk about doubt, we often talk about it in opposition to faith, right? The faith and doubt don't live together. They're, they're, they're natural enemies. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And I'm going to read a quote to you now that comes from Flannery O'Connor that says the exact opposite. And this comes from a letter that she wrote to a guy named Alfred Korn. For those of you who haven't read Flannery O'Connor, you should. She's wonderful. 1962, a guy, probably in his 20s, I picture him in his 20s, I picture him as a college student like myself when I was in my crisis of faith, wrote her a letter and said, hey, I'm really struggling with faith. Will you correspond with me? So she agreed. And they wrote letters back and forth, and those have actually been published. You can access those. So what I'm going to read to you now comes from a letter that she wrote, that Flannery O'Connor wrote in response to one of his letters. I think that this experience you're having of losing your faith, she wrote, or as you think of having lost it, is an experience that in the long run belongs to faith. I don't know how the kind of faith required of a Christian living in the 20th century can be at all if it's not grounded on this experience that you're having right now of unbelief. This may be the case always, not just in the 20th century. Peter said, and that's actually a misattribution, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. It is the most natural and most human and most agonizing prayer in the Gospels, and I think it is the foundation prayer of faith. Pardon me. So, for those of you who've been raised in an evangelical setting, you're really familiar, I'm sure, with this faith-doubt dichotomy, the idea that faith and doubt are in opposition to each other. But in that quote, Flannery O'Connor really turns that dichotomy on its head, and she says, no, they're not in opposition to each other. Doubt is something that feeds and fuels faith. Doubt is a soul-searching, truth-seeking part of faith. And that was a profound idea for me at the time, and it still is. When I think about the Christian story, at the very center of the Christian narrative is the incarnation of Christ. This idea that Christ became a human being and experienced what we all experience, and certainly what I experienced at the height of my faith crisis. Suffering, loneliness, abandonment, and despair even. Um, and G.K. Chesterton, I'm going to find this quote here. I kind of lost my spot. G.K. Chesterton in orthodoxy, makes the argument that Christ experienced not just 
abandonment on the cross, but despair and even a kind of doubt, what would seem like doubt to us. Christ on the cross saying, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of Christ on the cross, right? So here's what G.K. Chesterton says about that moment, that moment of lament, the crying out to the empty heavens. In that terrific tale of the passion, there is a distinct emotional suggestion that the author of all things in some unthinkable way went not only through agony but through doubt. He passed in some superhuman manner through our pessimism and at the cry from the cross confessed that God was forsaken of God. And now let the revolutionists of this age choose a creed from all the creeds and a God from all the gods of the world. They will find no other God who has himself been in revolt. They will find only one divinity whoever uttered their isolation, only one religion in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. I'm going to read that last part again because I think it's profound. They will only find one divinity who ever uttered their isolation, one religion, in which God seemed for an instant to be an atheist. As I reflect on my own story, I'm comforted in a lot of ways by this idea that God himself went through doubt and despair. And if God went through despair, spiritual despair, a sense of God's own absence, then I find myself at the center of a really unique paradox, namely that I can seek God, I can seek faith, not in spite of my doubt, but actually through it. I can seek God, I can seek faith, not just despite my doubt, but because of it, through it. And I would come back to that Flannery O'Connor quote, I believe, help my unbelief, when I talk to people who kind of want to wash their hands of all the dirty, messy stuff in the Bible and don't want to hear the word doubt, it's a four-letter word to them, I just want to say, open your Bibles. All you have to do is read Job, Lamentations, the Psalms. It's there, you guys. Doubt is there. It has been a part of the Christian experience since the beginning, since the very beginning. And I find comfort in that. So let's come back to my story. I was gone from the church for two years. At the time that I left the church, I didn't think I would come back. I had no idea if I would darken the door of a church again. When I came back, I didn't come back triumphalistically. I didn't come back in a celebratory mood. I hear these stories. Other people have those stories where they go off, do drugs, do all the crazy stuff, get it out of their system. And then they wake up one morning and decide they realize they love Jesus, they love the church. Those stories are very real, but that wasn't my story. I don't denigrate those narratives, but that was not my story at all. When I came back to the church, I came back because it felt like the lesser of two evils. And by that I mean I had experienced churchlessness, and I don't regret it. I actually think it was really healthy for me to go through that time. But at the end of those two years, I realized churchlessness was less satisfying to me than church even with all of its problems, and we all know the church has its problems. Churchlessness was less satisfying, and faithlessness was also less satisfying to me than faith, again, with all of its enigmas. So I came back to the church, not triumphalistically. I, did, I didn't come back with all the answers. 
I came back carrying my questions and my doubts still. And if I had an epiphany, if I had a realization at all, it was the realization that my doubts belonged inside the space of the sanctuary. That's where they belonged. The church gave me, the church as an institution, gave me what no other institution could give me, a space to search for God. And that's where I was when I came back to the church. I carried my questions, I carried my doubts, I carried my lament. I laid them on the sanctuary stage, metaphorically, to say, I don't know what to do with all these questions, but I believe that they belong here. And of all my choices, the Christian faith makes the most sense. And there were reasons for that, obviously. Philosophical, intellectual reasons, and I won't go into those this morning. But I did come back to the church and realized that it was okay. It was okay for me to be there. It was okay for me to feel angry at God still. That was an emotion that I could feel inside the sanctuary of the church. Not only was it okay, it was somehow essential that that was an emotion and an experience that was essential to my experience of the Christian faith, and in a lot of ways still is. And some of you are going to go through doubt. And if you haven't already, I can almost guarantee, without being presumptuous, that you will. It might happen now. It might happen your junior year. It might happen your senior year. It might happen 20 years from now when you're in your middle age and you've got teenagers and you think, you wake up one morning and think, Do I really believe this? Can I believe the Christian faith? When you go through doubt, not if, again, because most of you will, when you go through doubt, I would really encourage you not to fight it. You think, well, what does that mean? Don't fight against your, don't fight against your doubt. Fight with it. And by that, I mean, ask the hard questions. Go to your priests, your pastors, your professors, Wrestle with this stuff, you guys. It's so worth it. This is the time to do it. Embrace the questions. I can't say that enough. It's so healthy. Pray that prayer of unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Don't be afraid to express your doubts, your skepticisms. C.S. Lewis said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing here, a faith worth having is a faith that can stand up to scrutiny. A faith worth having is a faith that can stand up to scrutiny. You're not going to destroy the Christian faith with your doubts. If it's really true at the end of the day, and we don't know that definitively, right? There's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of mystery to this. But if it's true, it will stand up to our scrutiny. I really believe that. So I, I cannot emphasize that enough and encourage you enough to fight with your doubt. Don't fight against it. I'm going to end by reading a passage from my book. This comes toward the end of the book. I'm skipping all over the, all the sexy, really interesting stuff, right? So I spent two years outside the church, got all my demons out of me, spent half that time in bars doing crazy things that are sort of funny to me now. But um, I spent all those wild years, came back to the church, So now I'm 25, a little context. I wake up one morning, and for reasons to this day, I'm not really even sure why I decided to go to church one morning. 
So this is the context. That's the context for this chapter, for this little excerpt that I'm going to read to you. The chapter is called Taking My Demons to Church. If I follow the standard testimonial conversion narrative for Christians, the script for my life story might go something like this. Step one, grow up in a Christian church. Step two, go off to college from said church. Step three, try drugs and cigarettes and Pearl Jam. I'm dating myself. I know Pearl Jam is no longer the uh, music of rebellion, but step five, leave the church because of so-called worldly enticements. Step seven, return to church with penitent heart. Step eight, reestablish faith, discover good living. So that's the standard conversion narrative, right? Or reconversion narrative. That wasn't my story, not even remotely. I left the church because of my own discontent with faith and life. And when I came back, I still carried that same discontent. To be honest, I wasn't really sure I wanted to be there. I said to a friend at the time, I think I'm working out my demons. You'll always have demons, he said. Yes, I'll always have demons, I said, but I might as well take my demons to church. For me, going back to church was like going back to see an old friend that I'd been estranged from for years. I felt nervous and a little anxious. On one Sunday morning in particular, I sat down with my parents as if it was a perfectly normal thing to do. They hadn't seen me, mind you, in two years, right? At the end of the service, the pastor held out his arms and said, please rise and join hands for our final hymn. By tradition on Communion Sunday, the congregation held hands and sang the hymn, Bind Us Together. My parents stood up first. After a brief hesitation, I stood up too and began singing along. A skeptical philosopher like Nietzsche, had he been sitting beside me that day, might have told me I was caving into group pressure. The herd he would scratch in pencil on the side of the bulletin before passing it back to me in the middle of the sermon. Leaning forward from the pew behind, Karl, Mike, Karl Marx might have whispered in my ear that I was succumbing to religion as the opiate of the masses, avoiding the admission that my belief was just a bourgeoisie myth used to control the populace. But then if Nietzsche and Marx had said those things to me, I would have cornered them at coffee hour. I would tell them, even in my ambivalence about church, that I could sense in my heart a strong longing for God. Frederick Buechner said, faith is homesickness. That was how it felt to me. If we were accidents of a godless universe, then why did I sense this enduring pull toward God, the Alpha, the Omega, the unmoved mover? To me, longing for God was like hearing music from an open window on the street or seeing mountains off in the distance. The yearning felt almost like grief, a cry born into my heart before the human heart ever existed. I sensed the imago dei, the image of God within me. Even disbelief, I would tell them, was part of my search for God. Doubt impelled faith over a lifetime. Doubt was born from disappointment. Disappointment was born of longing, and longing was born of the imago dei. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to Pilgrim's Regress, says, the human soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given, nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present mode of subjective and spatiotemporal experience. If that was true, 
then this too was true. While I stood singing a hymn in an old Presbyterian church, feeling the start of a deep, uneasy peace, my doubt was my desire to touch the untouchable, to possess the presence of God. That's where the chapter ends, not where the book ends, but my book ends with struggle still intact. I think our doubts, we carry them with, our, with us our whole lives, but I have come to carry them inside the sanctuary of the church. And all I can say at the end of the day is I hope that you struggle with your doubt, fight with it, not against it. I'm going to say a benediction now. Why don't you stand? I'm going to say the benediction that I say over my wild and ornery three-year-old every night when I'm trying to get her to go to sleep. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Bless you this day. Go forth. Thanks for coming. I'll be at the back if you want to ask questions and interact at all. I'd love to meet you.